Father, we do thank you for this morning. We thank you for this time together. We pray that it would be fruitful for us, that you would grow in us the grace of Christ as we study this next chapter in Leviticus. We pray that you would display for us our need of him and the provision that you've made for us in giving and displaying your love that you sent your son when you didn't have to and that we have reaped great benefits if we put our trust in him and we pray that our hearts would be constantly drawn to him glorying in the beauties of christ and we pray that we do that a little bit more this morning in jesus name amen all right we are in leviticus 26 today remember that good morning Remember that uh, chapters 25 through 27, the last three chapters of Leviticus, are kind of in a, what's called, known as a chiastic structure. There, there are laws about what to do in the land. We talked about last time the, the Sabbath year for the land, the year of Jubilee, how slaves were to be handled, how the land was to be handled through those times. And then there is this section in the middle of on, and 27 is also the same similar thing laws on vows and those kinds of things but in the middle of these two chapters on laws there is this um, covenant how do you say this um, carrot and stick I don't know what, what do you, what would you call that there there's this blessings for obedience and cursings for disobedience uh, that are in the middle of these, and we talked about with a chiastic structure, that's the emphasis, the stuff in the middle. That's what's the most uh, um, emphasized part of it. Um, one of the integral parts of a covenant in the ancient Near East concerned the sanctions and blessings of being faithful to the covenant. Um, they're often at the end of the covenant document to kind of describe the sovereign's power over the vassal. I mean, we talked about what God entered into with them in Sinai was what's known as a Caesarine Treaty, where there's the great king takes on a people, I will give you protection, I will give you, you know, the, the peace of my rule, and you will serve me. Okay, that, that's kind of the idea. And here at the end of Leviticus, the end of the holiness code here, we have that same cultural tool being used um, that's actually uh, tells us something about God, tells us something about man, and it uh, puts out there something that we are required to do. I, I think this chapter is, uh, is pretty amazing because it's used very heavily in the New Testament. Um, a lot of a lot of Christology uh, is referenced in relation to this chapter. So let's start here in chapter 26. You shall not make idols for yourselves or erect an image or pillar, and you shall not set up a figured stone in your land to bow down to it. For I am the Lord your God. You shall keep my Sabbaths and reverence my sanctuary. I am the Lord. He starts there, verses 1 and 2. What does he start with? What is, where does it, have we heard this before? Ten Commandments. Ten Commandments, right? Here's a reference to at least two of them that we see. What are they? Just quick by way of review. Idols, no other gods. So, number two, <coughs> shall have no other gods before me, no idols, one and two. And then what do you have also there? Keep the Sabbath, Keep the Sabbath right? So we've got the, 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 the two uh, are referenced here that kind of give a nod to all of them is the idea but why start here why begin here okay so it references who he is when we talked about the Ten Commandments do we talk about ten arbitrary rules to follow well, yes Jacob and, and, and when we talked about the arbitrary rules to follow no, really, what do, they, what do they represent? What do the Ten Commandments represent? The Ten Words. God's character. God's character. Do this because I'm this way. Because it reflects me. And so he starts with, 
what he has revealed about himself and his word to Israel. Um, and it's a reminder of two of the commandments. What, and we, we've talked about that the, the, uh, there's no other gods before me being one. The nature of God is foundational for everything that we see in this chapter. Well, it's foundational for everything, period. But it's foundational for everything we see in this chapter. Why obey? Why obey? Because it reflects Him, right? It's, it's undergirds the entire thing. You're not just disobeying arbitrary rules that change with communal groupthink with what is good, right, and true. When we violate the Ten Commandments, we're saying His character is not good enough to image, and that's the core of rebellion against God. You're not good enough. I know something better. I don't want to reflect you. Um, so here we begin with the truth uh, that, that holiness and obedience require faithfulness to the covenant and to Yahweh, the only deity. It's monotheism. He starts with, I'm the only one, and we'll see the, the language he uses for other gods, idols, images, um, he references a couple of ways that they worship them in Canaan, these, these um, idols. The, the, idol, the word for idol here is, is dead, worthless, empty, that kind of idea. Um, to be nothing. There's no other God but Yahweh. Uh, and he highlights the absolute centrality of the Sabbath and the sanctuary for the holiness of Israel. So let's look at where it begins after establishing that God's character is the foundation. How do we display it? Verse 3, If you walk in my statutes and observe my commandments and do them, then I will give you rains in their season and the land shall yield its increase and the trees of the fields shall yield their fruit. <clears throat> your threshing shall last to the time of the grape harvest, and the grape harvest shall last to the time for sowing, and you shall eat your bread to the full and dwell in your land securely. What do we have here? What's the first round of blessing? What is it? What is it? Food. Rain. Food and rain. Rain's kind of a big deal. For what kind of society? Every society. Every society. That's right. That's a core issue. If you don't have timely rain, now you can have untimely rain. You know, when you have a lot of drought and then it comes a flood, as my mother in law says, um, it washes away the topsoil, you know, and all that kind of stuff. If you have timely rain, I know uh, a couple of years ago, my uh, father in law, they grow hay out on their place and you put out a bunch of fertilizer for the hay to grow in, hoping that it rains, hoping that the weatherman is actually going to be at least 50% right. What a great job that must be. Anyway, um, and, and if it doesn't, then the fertilizer burns up the grass and you don't get a hay crop, right? So you have to have timely rain. Isn't that what he's promising here? It'll come in its season. It'll come when it needs to come. And the result of that is going to be Lots of food, abundance, right? How does he describe this abundance? What, what's the language that he uses? It's a very poetic kind of stuff going on here. Land shall yield its increase. Yeah. What else? Any break in agricultural work referenced here? No, it's the one shall lead into the other. It ain't going to stop. Right? He talks about your threshing goes into your grape harvest. It doesn't stop. There's abundance. Rain leads to abundance. Israel will have her fill of food. They'll have enough. And the Hebrew word there uh, means to be in a state of, of confidence. The, the last uh, phrase there in, 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 in verse 5, dwell in your land securely. And when I think of secure, generally I'm thinking of military, you know, is North Korea going to invade us? We're going to have red dawn. Is you know that kind of secure? But here he's talking secure. Is you'll be satisfied. You'll be confident that you'll have enough food. That's peace, right? You're not worrying what's going to be on the table. He's promising them peace from obedience with 
supplying their needs. What, what's the next thing he, he promises? Verse 6, I will give peace. That's, the, the land securely is different from the word peace in verse 6. Uh, verse 6 is shalom. In, in verse 5, it's a different word. Uh, I will give peace in the land, and you shall lie down, and none shall make you afraid. And I will remove harmful beasts from the land, and the sword shall not go through your land. You shall chase your enemies, and they shall fall before you by the sword. Five of you shall chase a hundred, and a hundred of you shall chase ten thousand, and your enemies shall fall before you by the sword. What is he promising there? What's he promising there? What? Safety. Safety. Where? On the homeland. On the homeland. The Department of Homeland Security will be pretty much boring place to work. Well, the, the interesting thing is he's not necessarily promising peace. He says you won't be afraid, but he says he's promising that you'll win battles. Okay. Again, there's peace through strength, I guess. He will fight their battles for them. He will provide them um, a security from external invasion and also from internal invasion. What's he talking about there? Harmful beasts. Have any of you ever seen that movie? Ghost in the Darkness. Ghost in the Darkness. The whole the lion thing. Yeah. It is a great movie. But it. But this is what's in view here. This kind of stuff goes on. Um, you have uh, you have a wild animal when wild animal attack. You know, Animal Planet special when wild animals attack and. He's saying, I'm going to remove that stuff. You won't have to fear the, the wild beasts that prey upon humans um, from your land. I don't think that includes mosquitoes. Those are all in Egypt anyway. Um, two reasons for peace. There's internal security. There's protection from harmful beasts. But even more, it's a promise of external security. Think about the location of Israel, where, where it is on the map. It's between two major ancient powers, right? There is Egypt and there is Mesopotamia, Babylon, Syria, that area. And constant struggle for power there. And they march right through Canaan, right? That, that's the prime location for those battles to happen. And we see that throughout Israel's history. He's promising that if they obey, he'll protect them. And he did through years of obedience. He did. But unfortunately, we know uh, the rest of that story. This chapter actually is a, is a predictive chapter in a lot of ways. Um, the blessing of obedience promised is that they will not need to worry about external threats. If there's a war, they will be victorious. He's promising that. Uh, when there is no threat of war, it allows the Hebrews to lie down without fear. The idea is uh, that they won't tremble. If they're obedient, the only person they need to tremble before is God Himself. That's it. So what's next? 9 through 11. I will turn to you and make you fruitful and multiply you and will confirm my covenant with you. You shall eat old store, long kept, and you shall clear out the old to make way for the new. I will make my dwelling among you and my soul shall not abhor you. Um, what, what is he promising here? Food. Again, it's food and provision. Um, fruitful and multiply, what does that mean? Does that sound like anything you... Lots of babies is what he's promising. Isn't that the promise he gave to Abraham? Wasn't that the command he gave to Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply, have lots of babies? He's promising that he will cause that to happen for them. Um, the catalyst for this promise is that Yahweh promises them that I will turn to you. What does that mean? I will turn to you. What's the priestly blessing that they were supposed to give? Do you remember? <clears throat> the Lord bless you and keep you and make His face to shine upon you. This is the idea here. I will turn to you. I will turn to you with a face that is pleased with you. I will turn to you in pleasure. Take delight in what I'm seeing. 
And we'll see a contrast to that later in the chapter. But, but here it echoes that great blessing to the priests. When you have lots of kids, just you need lots of food. So, he again, for the parents' sake, he promises to supply food. Some, some families need more than others, but everybody will have enough uh, there. Um, I will make you fruitful and multiply you and confirm my covenant with you. You shall eat old store, long kept. There's plenty from the old stuff to, to bring us through to the new stuff. You'll have to clear it out. All right. He, re he reiterates the abundance promise with the idea that they'll be eating the old crop when the new crop arrives. All right. Of these escalating promises, what is the last and greatest blessing? I will make my dwelling among you, and my soul shall not abhor you. Why would he need to say that, my soul will not abhor you? Why would he say that? Because they're doubtful people. He's, he's promised it always, but they continually doubt. Okay. Our nature is different than his. Our nature is different than his. And that's unique to Israel. No. No. What does that say about the rest of those outside of Israel? That God abhors them. That God abhors them. The, the wicked are under the judgment of God all day long. And yet the obedience He calls for puts them in His favor. And I will walk among you and will be your God and you shall be my people. Notice the exclusivity there. My people as opposed to all the others. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt that you should not be their slaves. And I have broken the bars of your yoke and made you walk erect or upright. What, what is he promising? What is the greatest promise he, he gives them? He'll be with them. He'll walk with them. He'll be present with them. They will maintain their freedom under him. Why this idea of you will walk upright, or you'll walk erect? What, what were they doing as slaves in Egypt? We talked a little bit about the difference. Their backs were bent. Their backs were bent. They were treated like beasts of burden, right? Head low, pushing as hard as you can against the weight that you've been tied to. And yet he says you'll walk like freed men. Your, your burden will not be like a, you know, a donkey or an ox. He's promising them freedom. It'd be nice to stop there, wouldn't it? Let's look at verse 14. But if you will not listen to me and will not do all these commandments, if you spurn my statutes and if your soul abhors my rules so that you will not do all my commandments but break my covenant then I will do this to you I will visit you with panic with wasting disease and fever that consume the eyes and make the heart ache and you shall sow your seed in vain for your enemies shall eat it I will set my face against you, and you shall be struck down before your enemies. Those who hate you shall rule over you, and you shall flee when none pursues you. And if in spite of this you will not listen to me, then I will discipline you again sevenfold for your sins, and I will break the pride of your power, and I will make your heavens like iron and your earth like bronze, and your strength shall be spent in vain. For your land shall not yield its increase, and the trees of the land shall not yield their fruit. We see the first two curses there. And these are escalating curses. The first one, verses 14 through 16, it's a reverse of the blessing, right? He had promised them abundance. He promised them rain and favor. The opposite of enough is what here? I will visit you with what? Panic. If you don't have enough, if your kids are screaming, that causes panic, doesn't it? And he takes away the promise of abundance and puts them, puts on them, he brings to them, it says, panic. 
The blessings are tied to obedience. What happens when they're disobedient is much longer. It's a much longer list, much more detailed. And this is typical of the of the cultural way these documents are done. The 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 um, the threats of, for disobedience to the covenant treaty are usually longer than than the blessings. But what we see here is even more than that. It follows a, a reverse of the blessings, an undoing of God's favor. What what uh, what causes this curse? How does he describe this disobedience? Forgetfulness. Not listening, which shows what? What does he say? Somebody said it earlier. It's a spurning, I think I heard. What else? Will not do. Lack of faith. Okay. An abhorring. We just forgot. But by not putting the character and nature of God before them and, and trying to image it and work it, image it through, through the covenant, it's tantamount to abhorring who God is. There's, there's really no middle ground here. You're either walking in obedience, striving to look like Him, or you hate Him. Pretty stark, isn't it? I'm so glad that it's different today, right? The equating of emotional hatred of God's law, it's not just forgetfulness. If you don't reflect me, you hate me. Jesus said, if you love me, obey my commandments. Love for God is displayed in obedience. Disobedience shows hatred for him. All right, what's, what else is included in this first round here in verse 17? What, what else is he pointing to? Right, he's setting his face against them to be to be what ruled. They'll be ruled by somebody else. They'll be um, they'll fall down in the face of their enemies. It's a reversing again of the victory that he promises um, of, uh, of of safety in the borders. Notice it's a, it's also a reverse in, in God's character or, or approach toward them. He doesn't turn to them in pleasure. He sets his face against them. If they're covenant breakers, they'll be struck down by their enemies. They will be pursued and they will be afraid. And the idea is um, anxiety all the time, even, it, even if it's real, it, there, there's actual threat of danger or paranoia. They'll run when no one's chasing them. So in this first round of curses, you've got a situation where there are conspiracy theories and some of them are true. You know, you have this whole culture that is fearful and anxious and everything could be the last thing that causes turmoil. And then it goes to verse 18. And if in spite of this you will not listen to me, then I will discipline you again sevenfold for your sins and I will break the pride of your power and I will make your heavens like iron and your earth like bronze and your strength shall be spent in vain for your, for your land shall not yield its increase and trees of the land shall not yield their fruit. How is he describing um, what he's doing? What is, his, what is his... What are these curses? They're to what? Be a reminder to turn back. The reminder to turn back? Why do you say that? Because it says if you still don't, then mm -hmm. it's gonna make it worse. Okay, and, and what is what is he what's the word he uses? Discipline. Discipline. Notice the words not annihilate. Right? Destroy utterly destroy. He's talking about discipline. This is God's discipline on Israel for disobedience. And discipline is meant to do what? Instructs. To instruct and lead to, repentance. lead to repentance. Why the seven? The sevenfold. What does that tell you? 
I mean, he's not, prom- he's not promising anything different here. He's already said you're going to be hungry. You're going to, you're going to you know, not have the supply that you would have through obedience. He ramps it up, though, with this iron sky and bronze ground stuff. That sounds a little difficult to make a good harvest out of. Why, why is the sevenfold language being used there? What do we know about seven? It's complete. It's going to be the Com- be full extent of his Complete? Judgment. Full extent of judgment. This is kind of the second round of punishment because he says, right. "If you still don't, right, then I will." So we see an escalation of a second round, right? We saw four blessings, I think, in the last, uh, in the previous section, and I think, I think the way it works out is, and, and I'm, we'll see here in a second. It's five curses, so one more um, curse than than a blessing. But you're going to have. This, again, undoing of or reversing of the fertility that he promised. Uh, no rain. God is likened to a metal worker who casts a shield or firmament to block the rain. So without rain, the, the ground becomes like Houston ground, like rock. And he, and, he, and he says that's for discipline. Then he ramps it up again if they still don't obey. 21. Then, if you walk contrary to me and will not listen to me, I will continue to I will continue striking you sevenfold for your sins, and I will let loose the wild beast against you, which shall bereave you of your children and destroy your livestock and make you few in number, so that your roads shall be deserted. Great, release the hounds. Here it comes. the 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 promise of internal security within the borders now becomes a promise of internal insecurity within the borders. What, what, is it, um, what, what causes this? It's their walking contrary to me causes him to no longer just turn his face set against them. Now we have language of action. I will walk contrary to you. Right? It's, it's ramped up. Kevin, with language like this, it's no wonder Job's friends said it must be something that you've done. Yeah, yeah, although the timing. Yeah, that was written way before. Yeah, but, but yes, the, the idea of judgment of God would, would certainly would call that. <laughs> so he's just kind of taking his hand off and letting the beast come in naturally. Is that what he's saying? I will continue striking you. How many times does he use a personal pronoun here? He's doing it. He's exercising judgment through means of animals. And what, what do these animals do? They destroy the children. The they destroy livestock. the children and they destroy livestock. It's again reversing of be fruitful and multiply. And what does that do? Why does he, why does he mention the roads? What's this about the roads? Just to show that there will be less people. If there are fewer people, the roads aren't... What are roads used for? Let's just go basic. Travel for what? Trade, commerce, communication. You know, the British are coming. We need roads for that stuff. So you have now very few people on the road, very few people monitoring what's going on the road because there aren't enough of them. What does that make the road? Not safe. safe. There are more banditry kind of idea there. So you have a decrease in economic activity. So no children or... Reduce children, reduce livestock. Um, you got skies like iron and ground like bronze, so you got no, no produce going on. And now you have um, the economic trade and communication is completely cut off. You know, fairly cut off. The economic devastation is 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 real. This is the third escalation. All right. What is verse? Uh, what what is the next? Escalation involved, verse 23 through 26. And if by this discipline you are not turned to me, but walk contrary to me, then I will also walk contrary to you, and I myself will strike you sevenfold for your sins and will bring sword upon you that shall execute vengeance for the covenant. Vengeance for the covenant. And if you gather within your cities, I will send pestilence among you, and you shall be delivered into the hand of the enemy. When I break your supply of bread, ten women shall bake, break, shall bake your bread in a single oven and shall dole out your bread again by weight 
and you shall eat and not be satisfied. You see the escalation then. They're holed up in cities and where they think they're safe, away from their enemies, where the enemy can't reach, God reaches and visits pestilence on them. And so they fall to their enemies here. So it's more war and famine. Um, It's, again, the language of discipline, not annihilation. But if they continue in their rebellion, this continued, I will walk contrary to you, uh, just ex- escalates. It escalates. The sword, the hand that's holding the sword, may be one of an Assyrian or a Babylonian, but it's God who's bringing them. That's the idea here. And so all of these judgments, again, are used by the prophets later to describe God's judging, uh, judging you for your disobedience. All right. You shall eat and not be satisfied. Why reference ten women using one oven? What does that mean? Scarcity. There's, there's not enough to make an oven full of bread by one person. So that ten, I guess they're joining resources here. We don't use too much coal. Um, so you have this idea of scarcity. And then you get to the final punishment, verse 27. But if in spite of this you will not listen to me, but walk contrary to me, then I will walk contrary to you in fury. And I myself will discipline you sevenfold for your sins. You shall eat the flesh of your sons, and you shall eat the flesh of your daughters. And I will destroy your high places, and cut down your incense altars, and cast your dead bodies upon the dead bodies of your idols. And my soul will abhor you. And I will lay your cities waste, and will make your sanctuaries desolate, and I will not smell your pleasing aromas. And I myself will devastate the land, so that your enemies who settle in it shall be appalled at it. And I will scatter you among the nations, and I will unsheath the sword after you, and your land shall be a desolation, and your cities shall be a waste. Then the land shall enjoy its Sabbaths as long as it lies desolate. While you are in your enemy's land, then the land shall rest and enjoy its Sabbaths. As long as it lies desolate, it shall have rest, the rest that it did not have on your Sabbaths when you were dwelling in it. And as for those who are left, I will send faintness into their hearts in the lands of their enemies. The sound of a driven leaf shall put them to flight, and they shall flee as one flees from the sword, and they shall fall when none pursues. They shall stumble over one another as if to escape a sword, though none pursues, and you shall have no power to stand before your enemies, and you shall perish among the nations, and the land of your enemies shall eat you up. And those of, who you, of you who are left shall rot away in your enemies' lands because of their iniquity and also because of the iniquities of their fathers. They shall rot away like them. Here's the fifth and final escalation of punishments for covenant breakers. How does he describe his position toward them here? What does he say? He's not happy. He's not happy. That's very gently put. He's set against He will walk contrary to them in what? In fury. Notice the escalation of anger and the language of God toward them. This is a horrific punishment. What is the punishment? Hell on earth. He abhors them. What are they doing? They're running. They're running. A leaf causes them to flee. They're eating the hope of their future, their posterity. It's reverse promise of Abraham. It's almost insanity. It's like you know, total unnerving, mm-hmm. you know, where they think they're, somebody's chasing them, but nobody's behind them. So it's constant anxiety, constant mental instability, paranoia. It's erasing all the signs of the covenant. Yeah, it's, a, it's a reversing all of, the, all of the promises of the covenant. No land, no rest, no children, because they become your food. No food because you've got to eat your children. <laughs> no food because you've got to eat your I mean, it's just a, a complete horror. Notice the, um, notice the rejection, that the rejection of the covenant naturally leads to idolatry. He, he then says, the things that you worshipped, the things that you put your trust in, I'm going to destroy the high places, the, the, all, all these incidents of pagan worship. Um, 
the incense altars, but those are, uh, again, a, an incident of, of, uh, of pagan worship. And the, uh, the wordplay here is, he's throwing their corpses upon the corpses of their idols. The, the, the idea there, the idol is dead. You become what you worship. Right? That, that's the idea. Everything they have built and cultivated, the glory that they have in their industry, in their, in their architecture, in their art, all of that, destroyed. Gone. Their enemies, even their enemies, will be appalled at what they see. Why reference the Sabbath for the land? What's going on there? God, God will guard His creation. And you know, it's interesting because in Second Chronicles 36... There's record that this was um, exactly what went on. The 70-year exile was to give the land its Sabbath rest. And at the end of that, they were to return. If they will not be good stewards of God's land and keep the Sabbath years to give it rest, God will at their expense. Communal sins are cumulative. Repeated rebellions result in suffering for people in exile. The land is at peace. The people are at nothing resembling peace. The faintness that he says he'll put into their hearts, the language there means to be weak, soft, and timid. They will lose heart and panic even though no one is really chasing them. Kevin, I guess the question in my mind is how much of this law and the specificity of it transfers to the Christian post-Christ? Hmm. Because obviously the, the... timeline of the six years work, seven year break, mm-hmm. and then the 49th year. That's probably not literal to us today, but the concepts are, this, are still the same. Mm-hmm. One of the, you see Sabbath and creation, so it's, you don't have to look at the law specifically, you look at God's action, um, and he rested on the seventh day, and for similar reasons we do the same thing, or should do the same thing. Um, Sort of the same thing with the argument about with giving. You see tithing before the law. Um, so it's not necessarily that it just, we see it in the law and then we make a correspondence, but we see it even before the law. Um, you know, again, reflecting God's character. So it's not necessarily something that needs to be told to us, but we should see from who God is. Right. All right, verse 40. But if they confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their fathers and their treachery that they, ha- that they committed against me and also in walking contrary to me so that I walked contrary to them and brought them into the land of their enemies, if then their uncircumcised heart is humbled and they make amends for their iniquity, then I will remember my covenant with Jacob, and I will remember my covenant with Isaac and my covenant with Abraham, and I will remember the land. But the land shall be abandoned by them, and enjoy its Sabbaths while it lies desolate without them, and they shall make amends for their iniquity because they spurned my rules, and their soul abhorred my statutes. Yet for all that, When they are in the land of their enemies, I will not spurn them. Neither will I abhor them so as to destroy them utterly and break my covenant with them. For I am the Lord their God. But I will for their sake remember the covenant with their forefathers, whom I brought out of the land of Egypt and the sight of the nations, that I might be their God. I am the Lord. These are the statutes and rules and laws that the Lord made between himself and the people of Israel through Moses on Mount Sinai. What does this tell you about God? He's gracious. What is he calling for here? Repentance. Which is the repentance, which is the goal of discipline. Right? If you repent, the action that I had toward you, walking contrary to you in fury, that remember is not just sit around and think about. The remember is an active participation of God in the covenant. He will move. He will act when they repent. 
the guilt, if they confess, the idea is throw open, reveal their guilt and the sins of their fathers, then God will restore them. What's this language of uncircumcised heart? We see that in the New Testament a lot, don't we? That phrase, the uncircumcised heart. In the Old Testament. Well, you do. You do. The idea is you have the outward sign of the covenant, right? But inside the heart is a pagan heart. But if they repent, he remembers. And the action that he took against them will be reversed and he will act for them. Just curious, who are the forefathers that he's referencing here? Well, it's, it's not Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob because he's saying the forefathers whom I brought out of the land of Egypt. So it's, I think it's everybody who went before them, but namely Moses. Aaron. Who's receiving this right now as we're reading? In the in the in the time of the of this laws given. <laughs> so he's basically referencing them as he's giving them the law, telling them this is what's going to happen. Yet for all that, he says, uh, when they are in the land of their enemies, I will not spurn them. Uh, or utterly break my covenant with them for the Lord of their God. But I will for their sake remember the covenant with their forefathers. For their sake, remember the covenant with their forefathers. I just think that's really interesting. Um, as, as they are receiving it, they're saying, this is you know future kind of deal. We, it's, what we're doing now is an important thing. In spite of all this, he will not spurn them or abhor them to annihilate them. And this chapter is really a pointer of Israel's history. We, and we saw this before, you may remember. Rebellion, exile, repentance, restoration. Where do we see that before? Sunday morning, book that starts with an I, ends with Zaya. Whenever Philip went through that, the whole book is an escalated judgment kind of thing. And it's the pattern that we see in this chapter of the covenant. The summary statement here at the end uh, highlights that it's through Moses' agency that these commandments come from Yahweh himself. So this isn't just Moses getting righteous on them. This is directly from God. Yeah? It's interesting, though, that um, <clears throat> when they confess their sins, he restores them to himself, but he doesn't necessarily change the circumstances True. that have become a part of the punishment. They're still in the land of their Yes. And the land is still enjoying its Sabbath. Right. Because of what was done, but now he's with them. Right. Right. The, the circumstances are not guaranteed to be changed immediately. Why? What is he calling on them to do? To remain faithful. To remain faithful. To make amends. Um, and, and some of the prophets we see in Jeremiah, the, the prophecy that after they're there for 70 years, they, they come back. But it's in the meantime that they're making amends. Um, that sounds pretty rough for Israel, doesn't it? That's tough. If they disobey. Tough, tough row there. When, it's, it's a when. We've read the book. In this one chapter, you have the foundation of the gospel displayed. It's all here. There's a lot of foreshadow here, too. Yeah. Or at least in 2020 hindsight. Sure. Uh, the language here talks to, uh, these are my people. And yet, we know from Scripture that we're all covenant breakers from birth. We're all in violation of God's covenant with Adam. Uh, Psalm 51, 5 says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Romans 5, 12, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, so death spread to all men, because all sinned. We are by nature children of wrath. Each of us, not just the Jews, deserve the escalating judgments of God. He puts this covenant on everybody. Um, one of the sermons in Acts, Acts 17, 30-31, he says, These times of ignorance God overlooked. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge not just Israel, the world in righteousness. 
But even now his mercy is offered, Acts 10.43. To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Galatians 3.22, Paul says, But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. How could he do it? You have a clear statement in here. If you obey, there will be blessing. If you disobey, there will be massive, escalating, judgmental curses. How could he do it? Well, there's only one who could obey. There's only one that could fulfill 3 through 13 and receive the blessings of 3 through 13. The blessings of obedience were bestowed upon Christ, and here's the beauty He gave them to us when we trust Him. In exchange for the curses that we deserve, Christ is the covenant keeper, the only one who could actually reflect the nature and character of God. In exchange for the curses that we deserve, He gave the blessings of His obedience to us, active obedience of Christ. He's the image of the invisible God. Who could reflect Him better? And for our sake, He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might be covenant keepers, the righteousness of God. And those who put their trust in His active obedience, that He lived the life we should have lived, and His passive obedience, dying the death we should have died, are the objects of God turning His face toward them in pleasure. But if we remain in rebellion and walk contrary to Him, He will walk contrary to us in fury. So, what's the obvious response? There is no middle ground, even after the cross. Love God or hate God. That, those are the two options. Trust Christ. We have no hope without Him. We'll end with Galatians 3.10. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by the, all the things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not a faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. He bore the brunt of the escalating judgments. When they looked on him, it says in Isaiah, they were, they were um, appalled. He did not have the resemblance of a man. He was beaten and battered so much, the judgment of God on him, that the, the, the language of enemies in Leviticus 26 was used of the people who viewed Christ on the cross. They were appalled at what they saw. And he didn't deserve it. But he gives the righteousness that he lived, the obedience, the fruit of his obedience to us. How does it relate in the New Testament? That's how it relates in the New Testament. By trusting him, he's already obeyed. He's done the Sabbath. He gives the land rest. He, um, he does all the things that are required here that are upon all of us and yet takes upon himself that judgment that led to this what is going on here kind of response. I think it's a great chapter just to go over again and again to appreciate what we're saved from. It's not just Israel that's in view here. They're the ones that have 3 through 13. The rest of humanity is consigned to 14 through 39. <laughs> you know, the curses are upon all of humanity. Israel has this obedience hope thing going on, but only Christ can fulfill that. So, anyway, I think it's a great, a great window into what's to come in the gospel. Any, any other comments or questions? I know we're running along, but we did an entire chapter. Yeah. Uh, going back a little bit, he talks about in verse 11, I will make my dwelling among you, my soul and I hope. For you, and I will walk among you and be your God, and you shall be my people. That the walking among them didn't uh, in Eden. God mm. walked with Adam and mm -hmm. Eve before the fall. Right. It's 
seems almost like a restoration of the way things should be. Yeah, that's exactly right. Very good. Yeah, it's a it's a it's a return to what we were created to be to begin with. Images of God. He walks among us. It's the Emmanuel principle you see there. God with us. Um, he's talking in terms in their context in the tabernacle and in the temple, walking with them, being among them. But yeah, it's it's a picture of Eden through obedience. Verse forty um, talks about, but if they confess their their sins, it just reminds me of First John one nine, where he says, if, mm-hmm. if we confess our sins, He is faithful and mm-hmm. just, as, as opposed to being unfaithful, like their father. So right, just a great kind of. And dichotomy. Yeah. Well, it, it is a, again, you'd think the books were related. It's just one of those strange things. I don't know. Maybe it's in the translation. Did Apollos write this one too? No, Apollos, he wasn't born yet. He was not born. Um, any, anything else? All right, let's pray. Father, the author of Hebrews, whom you know who he is, um, said that it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a holy God. Thank you for the great grace that we have in Christ, that he is holy on our behalf, and that because we have the imputed righteousness of Christ, we are free to love you and to serve you even though it's imperfect trusting that the work of your Holy Spirit is continuing to conform our hearts to the image of Jesus who was perfect in his obedience we thank you for your great love for us that you sent your son to bear the curse to the fullest sevenfold on our behalf that we might stand before you as freed men grateful thankful from the heart wanting to serve you well and reflect you rightly we pray that our hearts would be faithful to you that even though we may be free sometimes oftentimes too many times we rebel against what you've given us like fools. We pray for wisdom to trust Jesus in everything, that He's enough, that He satisfies. I pray that you would use our relationships with each other, the means of grace here at the church, the study of the Word, praying and depending on you, that you would use those things to grow us in grace. Don't let us forget what we've been saved from. Let us hope in what we've been saved to. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.